morning, Pathway Church. Good morning. It's good to see you today. Uh, it's hard to believe that eight months have gone by, or almost eight months. And I've admired this church from a distance for over 30 years. I've known many people from this church. Uh, Tom Bates is a good friend of mine. Howard McGill and Shirley, who come from this congregation, were on my staff for 10 years as student ministry pastors. I know a lot of the folks that uh, have been impacted through the ministry of this church, so I've always admired you from afar, far, but it's been such a wonderful privilege to be with you these past few months and to experience you and to experience your love and your vision and all that God is going to do in this place. I'm so excited about uh, Brian and Cindy coming and the new day, the new ministry that's going to take place here at Pathways. It's going to be great. And I'm going to be watching. Uh, Brenda could not be here today because she's paying uh, taxi Graham. My son Brent is out of town in Daytona, so she has to get the kids to school tomorrow. And I'm a concerned husband. I didn't want her driving in the rain, so I had her leave early this morning. But she'll be here next Sunday. And she can say goodbye to you then. But it's been just a joy. We're the last sermon series of Doors. And this one is perhaps the most significant in terms of finding God's purpose and plan for your life or for the rest of your life. It's the door of obedience. When I was in my early 20s, I had a place come on my arm and the doctor was a little suspicious. And he goes, I think you need to go see a, a surgeon. I didn't want to hear that. And so I, I hate needles and I get really little concerned about that. So, so I go to this surgeon, they're going to do a biopsy, and I knew that it was going to involve needles. And he almost to me, he's this talkative surgeon. I'm scared to death. And he starts asking me questions. He found out I was a minister. He goes, how did you know you're supposed to go in ministry? And then he said, I have people come in here all time patients, and they tell me that they have heard from God and God wants them to do this. He goes, I love God. I try to follow Christ. But he never tells me anything. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How does that happen? God's word will always speak to your situation. It will always be relevant and in, in uh, agreement with his word. God's word will change you. And it will change others around you if you're listening to God. Paul describes in Galatians this way. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, Peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, patience, and self-control. That's how God's word changes you. This morning, I want us to look at what I consider the critical element in knowing and doing the will of God. What does God want to do with my life? Several years ago, I taught a seminar at what was then Warner Southern College, now Warner University, I was serving on the pension board of the Church of God, and I was leading a class for ministerial students. And they were asking these same questions. I sense God is calling my life. I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to prepare and how I'm supposed to prepare. I have questions. I'm convinced that most of us are better at hearing God's voice than we are at obeying. God's voice. The act of listening is not complete. Listening to God is not complete 
until we respond in obedience. Please hear that. You have not really listened to God's voice until you respond to God's voice in obedience. You say, well, pastor, if, if God tells me to do something, I'll do it. Oh, really? You know, that's interesting. The problem is if we truly listen to God, he rarely gives us all the information we want. It's on kind of a need-to-know basis. And, and we think we need to know a lot more than he's willing to tell us most of the time. You know, we have those questions, how is this possible? Why must I wait? What will people say? Where will the resources come from? Obedience usually leads with faith, not with answers. You'd kind of like it to be the other way around. You know, give me the answers and I'll have the faith. But we lead with faith and then we get the answers. There's a great story in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman. Uh, it's going to be on the screen, but I'm just going to talk to you about it. Naaman was the commander of the armies of the king Aram. He was the most valued soldier in the army. He was very important. He had great power. And he also had leprosy. It was a death sentence. Now, it's hard for us to kind of picture leprosy today. But it was the equivalent of our AIDS 20 years ago. Remember when AIDS first came out? Nobody lived. They all died. In the early 80s, one of Brenda's great friends from her youth group had AIDS. And his mother talked to Brenda and she said the saddest thing was that everybody left them. Families deserted them. She goes, I go to the hospital to see my son. And there's all these men alone, dying, and no one's there. You know. That's what happened with leprosy. When you had leprosy, you were pushed out of society. You were in like a shanty town. And when you went close to anybody, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean. And it was a horrible disease. Your appendages fell off, your fingers, your nose. It made you look uh, horrific. It was a terrible thing. And there was no cure. It was a death sentence. Like anyone else, when you receive that kind of news, the first question is, is there anything that can be done to help us? I had a good friend who discovered he had pancreatic cancer, which is another tough one. And when he found out, he explored every option. He went to Mexico and took certain herbs and he did all kinds of things. When you know that it's a death sentence, you look anywhere and everywhere for answers. Naaman knew there was no answer, but he had to ask. But Naaman's army had captured a young girl from Israel, and she was a servant for his wife. And when she heard about the problem, she said, if my master could just see the prophet in Israel, he could cure him of his, of his uh, leprosy. So when Naaman hears this, he goes to the king Aram and he says, my servant girl says there's this guy, this prophet in Israel who can cure me. Now it's interesting, the king of Aram does not send him to the prophet. Nobody sends the ruler of Aram to a lowly prophet. He sends him to the king of Israel. With all these gifts and all this stuff, he goes, I want you to cure my general of leprosy. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? 
Nowhere did the girl say, there's a king in Israel who can cure your general of leprosy. He's just a prophet who can do that. So already they're changing the way it's going to happen. And when they get there, the king of Israel panics. He knows that he can't do it. He says, am I God? Nobody can cure leprosy. And he starts to tear his robes. And the prophet, Elijah, hear, Elisha hears, and he tells the king, send it to me. I can cure his leprosy. So Naaman is an authority figure. So when he arrives at Elijah's place, he expects the prophet to come out and, and to take care of him. The prophet sends out a messenger, and he tells him to go dunk himself seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman's really excited about that. He's ticked off. Scripture says he's angry. And he proceeds to tell Elisha how he thinks he should heal him. That's interesting, isn't it? You know? He thought the prophet Elisha would come out and call on the name of his Lord, wave his hand over the leprosy, and cure him. Now notice what's happened. Just a few days earlier, Naaman had no hope. He was dying, and he's going to die pretty quickly. There's no cure for leprosy. Then he heard about a possible cure. And then he's upset because the cure is not coming the way he thought it should come. Finally, the servant convinces Nahum, if Elisha had said, go do some incredible feat, you would have done it. Why don't you just do what he says? And he does, and voila, he's cured. Amazing. Nice story. Except it's our story. It's our story. How often have we called upon the name of the Lord and said, God, I need you to fix this problem. I need you to help me with this situation in my life. I need you to lead me in this thing. And when he does, we go, well, that's not the way I wanted you to do it. No. That's not really what I had in mind. I had a different way in mind. It's interesting. We expect God to take care of us our way. And we need to remember, it's only when we obey that listening becomes a completed act when we're truly listening to God. When I was at uh, Warner Southern College, now Warner University, teaching this seminar, the pension board was there and they took us on a tour of the campus. Now, I had been a trustee at Warner Southern College for 15 years. I was there during the years that it almost went under. Uh, the college was barely surviving, heavily in debt. They had 37 acres on one side of US 27. And across the road was 350 acres, which was where they dreamed of building their campus, their main campus. It might as well have been the Red Sea. There was no way to get there. They were meeting in little uh, modulars and trailers and having classes and barely surviving. And I was there during those years, and every, every trustee meeting was, how are we going to meet the bills? How are we going to stay afloat? And yet, uh, across the road was the dream of what God had. For 25 years, the college struggled just to 
survive. Many gave up the dream. But the driver of our van that day was Malcolm Riggle. Malcolm Riggle is, was one of our great pastors in the church of God. He pastored a lot of our prominent churches. As a matter of fact, when I was at Monroe City as a TIPS pastor, I shared a story about Malcolm, and a couple came out, and they said he was our pastor at this church. And they said, in fact, he married us. And we found out 10 years later, because he left right after the wedding to go to this next church, he didn't sign our marriage certificate. <laughs> and, and that sounded like Malcolm. It really did. He was kind of absent-minded at times. Uh, he was 75 years old. And he was teaching two classes. He was overseeing the building of several million-dollar facilities across the road, across 27. He had developed a distance learning program for pastors with 50 pastors or 50 prospective pastors enrolled. This was the early 90s when that was radical stuff, online learning that he was doing. He had all these things going on. He was also building a new house, the 35th house he had built in his ministry. Uh, He was a construction guy too. He did everything. And uh, I said, Malcolm, have you ever thought about retiring? And he looked at me and said, Steve, I think I have nine more years to live. And I want to make sure that I live them full out for God. Well, he was partially right. He had seven more years to live. But he did live them full out for God. Malcolm had been with the college for over 30 years. He acted in faith when there seemed to be no way that you could get there. A week ago, Brent and I drove through the campus. We hadn't been there a long time. Amazed at all the new buildings have been built. It's now a school of a thousand kids. They just added a school of agriculture for Florida Citrus. Amazing what God has done. When God asks us to obey, he does not say how long it will take. He does not say that it will be easy. I wish he'd say that, but he doesn't. And he does not say it will always make sense. Just ask Naaman. Too often our obedience is couched in terms that fits our desires, our schedules, our budget, our risk tolerance, our perception of reality. God, quite frankly, is not interested in any of those things. He really isn't. I have a favorite modern-day Naaman story. It's a true story. Bruce was a returning missionary, and when he came home, he went to see one of his best friends, and his friend said, hey, Bruce, tonight uh, after church on the evening, we have an in-home Bible study. Why don't you come tonight? He goes, sure. And as they were driving to the Bible study, he goes, I need to tell you how this works. He goes, at the end of the Bible study, we put a chair in the middle of the room, And you can either sit in the chair or kneel at the chair, and the group gathers around and and prays for you. It's a very intimate, wonderful, wonderful moment. But I need to let you know, Bruce, there's always one lady that comes, and she kneels, and she asks for an unspoken request. He goes, how do you pray for that? You know, it's like praying for all the people of the world. Uh, Specifically, what do you want to pray for? Who do you want to pray for? 
What is the need that we need to pray for? She never shares that. Sure enough, into the Bible study, woman comes forward, kneels by the chair, and all the guys and the ladies gather around, and they begin to pray for her for her unspoken request. And as they're all fervently praying, the Holy Spirit kind of speaks to Bruce and says, because, you know, when you kneel and you got on shoes on, they kind of split apart from your foot a little bit. You know, those, sometimes the heel does. And there's a crack between her foot and her shoe. And he said, the Holy Spirit said, put a quarter in there. And you go, God, what are you talking about? I don't know these people. <laughs> they don't know me. I don't know what this poor lady's praying about. It's unspoken. Why, <laughs> why would I put a quarter in her shoe? And what's interesting, uh, because of his work in the mission field, he realized that often God asks us to do things that don't make sense to us, that feel like it's nonsense. It's not always logical. So while everyone was fervently praying, he takes a quarter out of his pocket, he slips it into her, her shoe. The lady gets up, she feels something in her foot, she sits down, takes her shoe off and says, who put a quarter in my shoe? And Bruce goes, oh, great God. Now I'm here with a room full of strangers. He goes, I, I did. I, I felt like the Spirit was telling me to put a quarter in your shoe. And she starts crying, weeping. He goes, oh, great. <laughs> These people don't know me. My friend is now stepping further away from me. You know, <laughs> who, who is this guy? She said, you know, I've come here and I've prayed week after week, because I know God's telling me to do something. I'm not sure what he wants me to do. Sometimes I think about baking cookies for this lady, but I thought if I do it, it'll see stupid. I've thought about calling this person, but how do I explain to this crazy woman I, from the church? I'm calling her and I'm talking to her, and I didn't have courage to do it. But if you can put a quarter in my shoe because you believe that's what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, maybe I can do those things. A few months later, Bruce comes back to the church, and as he's walking across the parking lot, this huge man comes running across the parking lot, and he recognizes him. It's the husband of that woman. He thinks, he's going to beat me up, you know? I, and he goes, Bruce, I, I've got to tell you what's happened with my wife in the last few months. It's a crazy story. She baked some cookies for the woman across the street. And when she went over there, the woman shared that her husband had left her that day. She was sweeping, and she suddenly felt an urge to call another lady of the church, and she called her, and she just said, is everything okay? And the woman began to cry. She goes, our teenage son's in trouble. We're afraid we're losing him. He goes, it doesn't stop there. We're in the grocery store, and my wife starts putting baby food and diapers in our basket. And I said, honey, I don't like baby food and I'm not wearing Depends yet. You know? And he goes, when we get outside in the parking lot, he sees a woman with a baby. She sees a woman with a baby in an old beat up car and she makes a beeline for her with this bag of stuff. She goes, these are for you. And the woman looks inside and she goes, how did you know exactly what I needed? And she said, my father told me. And she led her to Christ in the parking lot of a grocery store. 
He goes, it's amazing, but sometimes it's scary. At 10 o'clock at night, she wakes up and she goes, I have to go to the bus station. He goes, honey, we don't have anybody coming or leaving from the bus station. But he goes, I'm not going to let her go to the bus station at 10 o'clock at night by herself. So I go with her and we get there. He goes, there's some strange people in the bus station at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm praying, oh, Lord, please don't let it be one of these. And he goes, everybody's leaving. There's one young man with a backpack that's walking off into the darkness. My wife chases him down and said, I want you to spend the night at our home tonight. You're supposed to. He goes, who's, who's asked you to do that? Who do you know? She goes, my father told me. And he, he said, this guy looked at her really strange because my wife is not young. Her father would have to be 120 years old, you know. But he spent the night, and the next morning they led him to Christ. He said, Bruce, I can't tell you how many people have spent the night in our home and accepted Jesus because somebody put a quarter in her shoe. God's ways are higher than our ways. And listening that leads to obedience will not always fit our schedule, and it will not always be logical. When I went to Clearwater, I was 23 years old, and we were pastoring our first church. And I remember when I got there, they were so excited. They took me in to see the fellowship hall that they were just finishing. They didn't have a certificate of occupancy yet. They were so proud of it. Beautiful little church. And there was something in my spirit that said, this church will never succeed in this location. I said, God, wait a minute. I've only been here two weeks. And they don't even have a certificate of occupancy, and we're not moving anywhere, you know. And the church was about 50, and we grew to 90. Sometimes we get to 110, but we only had 52 parking spaces. And so we'd get to that point, and we'd go back down. We'd get to that point, and we'd go back down. And finally, I realized after about four years, the only way this church was ever going to do anything is we had to change locations. And so I talked to the board and expecting them to throw me out. And they said, you know, you might be right, but how are we going to get there? Because the church was a weird group of folks. They, they had a lot of 20-year-olds and a lot of retirees. There was only 90 of us, but the, that was a lot that we had. And nobody in the middle. Nobody from like 30 to 55, you know, the made, major wage earners. And so we're having this building fund campaign to, to try and buy some property and, and to begin a, a new building. And at the banquet, Brent and I had talked about, you know, we needed to, to give. At that time, I was making a little less than $13,000 a year, and that included everything. You know, uh, auto reimbursement, hospitalization, everything, less than $13,000. We were tithing. And we said, okay, well, we, need to, we need to participate in this, you know. And so we get there that night, and the head of the campaign said, Steve, I don't ever ask anybody, any pastor to do this but I think you need to tell them what you're going to give tonight. I'm thinking, if you never ask, why are you asking me? You know? <laughs> so I got up and, and I said, I believe that this is the most important thing this church will ever do. And Brent and I are committing to give $20 a week for the next three years. And I thought Brenda was going to fall out of her chair. We, hit, we hadn't discussed amounts. You know, Remember, I'm making less than $13,000. Uh, I was amazed. 15 families in our age group made the exact same commitment. And that church today is over 700 people, and they've planted a church. Nothing happens until we obey. 
Naaman had a choice of remaining a leper and dying or listening to God's voice. We have a choice of allowing God to do exciting things in our lives or to trust our own wisdom and do it our way. Obedience to God is rarely simple. Rob and Tina were in our church in South Daytona, and they used to take mission trips to the Dominican Republic. And Rob talked to Tina. He said, you know, I really feel like God's calling us to, to go and live in the Dominican Republic and to, and to plant churches and to do a health clinic. Now, they didn't know anything about health clinics. They both worked for Spectrum. He was an installation guy, and she worked in the office. And they had all kinds of reasons why they couldn't do it. They had four sons, one in medical school, two in college. And and Tina had an elderly mom. How are they going to just leave everything and go to the Dominican Republic? Well, they did. They were there for 10 years. They planted churches. They developed a, a wonderful medical clinic that I've been in several times. And they now are only there part time because Tina's mom truly is old now. She's 91. Uh, but for over a decade, God used this couple to impact lives. My son Jeff uh, is our middle son, and he was on staff with me in Lexington. He directed our sports ministry, among other things. We had an upward basketball. It was over 300 kids involved, and, and Jeff was heavily involved. When I resigned and went to Daytona, Jeff stayed there for eight more years. He had several chances to become a lead pastor. He never felt called to be a lead pastor. He called me one day. He said, Dad, I really think that God has called me to be a Navy chaplain. I go, a Navy chaplain? I think Jeff was in his late 30s at that point. I'm thinking, going to be a Navy chaplain? Or mid-30s, anyway. And so he said, yeah, he goes, I really think that's what I'm supposed to do. The problem is he had a Master of Arts from Asbury. The Navy required a Master of Divinity, which is another 60 graduate hours. So Jeff, while directing 300 kids in sports, doing other things in the church, goes back to school, borrows $20,000. And you got to realize Jeff is, is the Dave Ramsey guru of my family. He never spends a penny on anything, you know. And he, he lets me know often that they're debt-free. But he borrowed $20,000 to go to school, not even knowing if he would be accepted into the chaplaincy. And I remember thinking, Jeff, what are you thinking? First of all, his family, they, he met his wife in the church in Lexington. They've never been anywhere. I mean, the whole family's there, all of her siblings and all the connections. And I'm thinking, this isn't going to work. But he was accepted. I think we got a picture of him. There he is. Yeah. That's Jeff and Miranda. So Jeff's accepted. And so when he goes through the training, I'm thinking, okay, God, let them be somewhere close to Kentucky. So it's within driving system, like Norfolk or somewhere like that, you know, the the naval base. No, he gets sent to San Diego, you know. And that's where he's been the last four and a half years. And they feel they're in the center of what God wants them to do. And thankfully, in April, he does get to go to North Carolina, and we're excited about that, get him on this coast. That's what it means to obey. It means trusting when we do not know and we do not see how it's possible. And maybe there's some folks here this morning that God's speaking to you, and the peace that hasn't happened yet is you haven't obeyed. You've heard it, 
You say, well, I don't think we can do it that way, God. Let's, let's do it this way. And God says, no, we're going to do it my way or we're not going to do it. You know? that's, that's how he works, you know. So this morning, if God's Spirit is speaking to you, I just want you to pray with me. Just bow your heads for a moment. Maybe there's someone here today who's listening to God's voice. What's he saying in your heart? Are you willing to drop a quarter in a shoe? Are you willing to obey when you don't have all the answers or know exactly how it's going to turn out? Our listening means nothing until we're willing to obey his voice in our hearts. Father, obedience begins with hearing your voice and taking that first step. If you're listening today, pray this prayer with me. Today, God, I'm listening to you. I don't know where this will take me, but I want you to know I'm willing to obey. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. If you're hearing this voice this morning, your first step might just to be to say, you know, I'm going to come up here and let God know. I'm going to kneel at an altar and say, I'm not sure where you're taking me, but I'm available. I'm answering your voice. I'm being obedient, whatever that means. Trust him to honor that. Would you stand with me as we sing? Let's lean in and be obedient to him. Whatever he's bringing to your mind, whatever the Spirit's bringing to your mind that you need to be obedient to, let's lean in and be obedient to that this morning. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting
so grateful for your call. We're so grateful that you talk to us, that you speak to us. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we're afraid, uh, that we demand our own way and our own way of doing things. Today, Lord, we just want to say we're open to your spirit. It may not make sense to us. It may scare us, but we know that you're faithful. And when we trust you and when we complete the act of listening by obedience, we're going to be amazed, absolutely amazed at what you do in us and through us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness in Christ's name.